West Virginia is known for its lush mountains, beautiful colors, and scenic overlooks with cliffs that provide views you will never forget. It's why so many people love this state and call it home. But these mountains are full of secrets, and these cliffs can be dangerous. For some, it may also be the perfect escape plan. This story begins with a 911 call from a man who claimed his wife plummeted 1,400 feet off the Grandview Overlook in the New River Gorge. An extensive search and rescue mission followed that lasted several days, but some investigations aren't always as they seem. Like the country roads that wind through the mountain state, some cases are full of twists and turns that you never saw coming. This is the bizarre case of Julie Wheeler. I'm Autumn Collins. And I'm Casey Gentile. Welcome to Crime in the Coalfields. Crime in the Coalfields is brought to you by Notoriously Morbid and Rosen Questenberry Funeral Chapels. When originality is everything, Notoriously Morbid has you covered. We offer a full array of exciting cosmetics, and if alternative clothing is your style, we have it. Check us out online or stop by. Notoriously Morbid. Embrace your beautiful darkness. How would you like to relieve the emotional and financial burden off of those you love, express your own wishes, and avoid conflicts among family members? Call Sandy Evans at Rosenquist and Berry today. This is one of those stories that I think all journalists are going to remember forever. It's the one that sticks out the most to us. I just cannot wait for everyone to hear all the details of the story and how absolutely insane it is. We hope that you're on the edge of your seat and want to know more. We begin on Sunday, May 31st, 2020, when the Raleigh County 911 Center received a call from a frantic man claiming that his wife fell off the Grandview Overlook in the New River Gorge National Park and Preserve in Beaver, West Virginia. First responders came to the scene at around 8.30, and that's where they found the man and his son looking for their wife and mother. There were also several other people who were there at the Overlook enjoying their evening because it is a national park, and they also joined in on the search and started looking for this missing woman. To get a better idea of what the scene looks like, it's important to understand the layout of Grandview, and I'm going to give it off to Casey, who's going to give us a better explanation of that. So Grandview has plenty of hiking trails, views of the New River and mountains, an outdoor theater, picnic areas, and a playground. It's a place a lot of people go to enjoy the outdoors. The overlook at Grandview is the highest elevation at the park, and it's a 1,400-foot drop to the New River. But there are a series of ledges on the cliffs that lead down to the New River, so it's not a straight shot down. It's a very popular place for tourists to go and take pictures, and the Overlook is by far the most visited thing at Grandview. So when you're standing at the Overlook, taking in the panoramic views, there is a railing between the Overlook itself and the ledge of the cliff. And while the drop is steep, it is a safe area because of the railing. In order to fall, you would have to climb over that railing. And then it's still a few feet on the other side to the ledge. Autumn, you and I have both been there more times than I can count. I mean, do you feel like it's a safe place at the Overlook? It's definitely a safe place. I feel like to fall over, you would have to be doing something that you shouldn't be doing because you're not supposed to go over the railing. And even at that, the there's a good bit of space in between. It's a pretty popular place. I mean, people go there year round to take in the views and enjoy all four seasons in the state. And there's also a parking lot that's very close to 
the overlook and from certain parts of the parking lot you can actually see the overlook area so you know there's traffic coming in and out constantly and it's not a very secretive place no not to mention one of the trailheads is basically starts right at the overlook so if people are there hiking you're either going to start at the overlook or you're at least going to have to walk by it so there are pretty much people there all the time yeah no matter where you're at at grandview you're gonna see a good bit of people and to see exactly what the overlook looks like and what we're talking about we'll have pictures on our website that you can check out so back to the search investigators searched all evening for the missing woman and their search started at around 8 30 that evening so they didn't have that much time to look for her that night and they caught off the search at around 1.30 Monday morning, which is June 1st. So just a few short hours later, the search efforts picked back up as soon as the day broke. And this is when the resources were called in. They called in the local sheriff's departments, state police, fire departments, rope and rescue teams, the park service, even a tracking canine. These men and women put their lives on the line to search for this missing woman, and the search really kicked up on that Monday morning. And as that search picked up, that's about the time we started hearing in the newsroom of these reports of a woman missing at the Grandview Overlook. So that's when we immediately sent crews to the scene to figure out exactly what was going on because we weren't able to get very much information from the 911 center. And I was working that morning and I can remember autumn. We were very, very hesitant about what to post on social media because we still, like I said, we had no idea what was going on. We had to make sure somebody fell and unfortunately didn't jump that's something that we always want to be careful about when we're as journalists is not reporting anything like that so we knew we had to get a crew to the scene so that is when we sent reporter paris dunford and photojournalist larry mars when we got there we had they wouldn't even confirm if she fell if she jumped um we didn't have any information confirmed we just saw i would say probably two dozen firemen and women rappelling down a mountain and so that was the only information we had was the men and women who were literally risking their life i mean you know that grandview it has that fence but then there's only about you know room for one person to stand after that fence and then it's a cliff and it's it you look straight down and it looks like death this is no small search that was happening here i think it's really important to just emphasize that it was such a grand operation trying to find this woman. It was it was absolutely insane and the resources that were being poured into this search. It was really incredible. Our photojournalist Larry Mars, I think, described it best. He said it was controlled chaos. And you have to think, you can't just call anyone in and have them rappel down a cliff. You have to have people who are specialized in this and know exactly what they're doing. And that's exactly what happened. They took this very, very serious from the very beginning. Very serious. And like you said, there were experts called in. There were professional people who they had to specifically have at the scene to do this type of search just based off of the layout of Grandview because it was so dangerous. While we do love our mountains, it can definitely pose some challenges if something like this ever happens. Crews searched for the rest of the day and still came up empty-handed. And while we do not have official confirmation at this time who the crews are searching for, there was a post going around on social media that gave away some clues. We saw this post because it came from a former 59 News employee, Rodney Wheeler. 
He hasn't worked here for over five years, but a lot of people who currently do work here worked with him. And this is our editor, Brian C., reading that Facebook post by Rodney. The accident in Grandview yesterday involved my wife. They have not found her yet, but I'm holding out hope that they will find her and she is okay. I'm heartbroken and lost right now, but I have to have faith. Please give us time to work through this and please keep us in your thoughts and prayers. So at this point, we realize who the woman missing is. And it's Rodney Wheeler's wife, 43-year-old Julie Wheeler. At this point, we're still waiting for the official confirmation from investigators, but we have a pretty good idea who they're looking for based off of our reporters who are at the scene and that Facebook post from Rodney. Our reporters Larry and Paris also saw Rodney at Grandview while the search was underway, and Paris had the chance to talk to him on that chaotic day, and this is how she describes it went. I was like, I know it's soon, but would you like to talk? He was like all emotional and was like, no, it's just it's just too soon. It's, I, I just don't even have the words. We wrapped up our news coverage on day one as rescue crews ended their search for the night at the Grandview Overlook. And we pick back up bright and early on Tuesday, June 2nd. Larry and Paris are back out at the scene. Now a National Guard helicopter is also assisting in the search efforts. And they also extended their search to the ground. Investigators finally confirmed they are, in fact, searching for Julie Wheeler, and a tracking dog actually picked up on her scent from the Overlook, so now the search is really in full swing. However, we still don't know at this point if this is a recovery mission or if she is still alive and severely injured, but once they confirmed who they were searching for, investigators are not as forthcoming with information as they were on day one. By the second day, they weren't telling us what they were doing anymore. And there was less people there, which, you know, in my head makes me think either one, they believe that that woman has has died and it's a body recovery mission, or they weren't looking for a woman at all anymore. The day continues and we extend our coverage to our evening newscast, where Paris gave live reports from the Overlook as the search for Julie continued and it was still coming up empty-handed. But 10 minutes into our 5 p.m. newscast, everything changed. 59 News starts with breaking news. A strange and surprising turn of events surrounding a woman reported missing in Grandview as she is found safe in Raleigh County. Crews were searching for Julie Wheeler for three days at Grandview National Park and just moments ago, state police confirmed Wheeler was found safe in Beaver. Miss Julie Wheeler was found alive and well, hiding in the most obvious of places, a closet in the living room of her home in Beaver, West Virginia, 15 minutes away from the scene of the crime. So now everything has changed. We've wasted time. We've wasted effort. We've wasted a ton of resources, among other things. I don't have words, honestly. I don't either. When we found out that she was hiding in her home of all places, which was very close to the scene of the crime, I don't think any of us could believe it. I think all of our mouths in the newsroom were just on the floor. It's definitely one of those things that you hear and you're like, there's no way. But we're here to tell you that this happened. This is a true story in West Virginia. It feels like a movie. Well, it's not yet, but we've got a good plot. Maybe Netflix? Call us up. Crime in the coal fields. <laughs> <laughs> but why? So why did she do this? How did we get here? We're going to let you process all this information so we continue to tell the story. So state police showed up 
to the Wheeler home to do a walkthrough. They were able to do this as Julie was previously on probation. We'll get to why in just a few minutes. But Rodney and Julie are both taken into custody and go to state police for questioning. There, the truth comes out. Rodney admits they actually threw some of Julie's personal belongings off of the overlook to make it seem like she was there, but all along she was at home. And it didn't take long for investigators to file charges. Our news crew was there for the perp walk, and you can watch that video over on our website, WVNSTV.com, and see their demeanor as they're taken in cuffs to jail. It really sets the scene. Casey, the thing that stands out to me the most out of all this is that they thought at least some of it through by throwing over her belongings over the overlook, but there were so many other parts to this that they just did not think through, and it doesn't make sense to me because... You think of these small little things that could possibly manipulate the situation and throw off the investigation, but then there's other parts like her hiding in her closet in her home that just, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. We all have a lot of questions and I still think of so many questions as we're telling the story, but let's leave everyone on a cliffhanger because we're going to have an exclusive interview answering the questions, but not yet. All of the questions that I'm sure you who are listening right now that you have, they're all going to be answered just in a little bit. So stay with us. And for now, let's get into the charges. Rodney was indicted in August of 2020 for a conspiracy to obstruct justice. The case did not go to trial because Rodney pled guilty. He ended up serving two months in jail and six months of home confinement, as well as three years of supervised release. Julie was also charged with conspiracy to obstruct justice. Her case did not go to trial either as she pled guilty. She was sentenced to 12 months in jail. But now the biggest question of all, why come up with a plot to fake your own death? Well, it's a plan that you may have to think of if jail time is a possibility in the horizon. So Julie was in legal trouble when this happened. She was the center of an investigation into healthcare fraud. In February of 2020, she pled guilty to a healthcare fraud charge after she claimed that she was caring for someone who had spina bifida, which is a serious condition that affects the spinal cord. Julie was supposed to be helping this person with hygiene and other day-to-day needs. And through a program at the Veterans Affair Medical Center, some veterans' children qualify for this type of care. So Julie was billing the VA at their rate of over $700 a day to provide care for eight hours. However, that was all a lie. Julie was not providing the level of care and she ended up pocketing a lot of this money. This went on from October of 2016 to April of 2018. Now this wasn't her own child that she was caring for. It was somebody in the family But Julie was the owner of JRW Home Care Support Services, which qualified her to give this type of care. This is when the not-so-thought-out plan of faking her own death came about. Julie, as we mentioned, had already pled guilty to the crime, but had not yet been sentenced. So now the two crimes are combined, faking her death and healthcare fraud. She was sentenced to three and a half years in order to pay over $289,000 for taking money from the government. She also received one year for the conspiracy to obstruct justice in the Grandview scheme. So in total, Julie will spend four and a half years of her life behind bars, and she is currently behind bars. I mean, there are a lot of questions that I think everybody wants to know. I mean, we know why she faked her death, but it still doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. No, it doesn't. And 
for so long, everyone had questions. No one could understand why they made the decisions that they made and how all this could even come about. And this was something that we truly did not know for years and years. And also in court records that we've been reading through, it did mention that there were other people involved and they were juveniles at the time. And Autumn, we have a lot of those questions finally answered. And we sat down with one of the people Julie Wheeler heard the most. We sat down with Ryan Wheeler, which is Rodney and Julie's oldest son. He had a lot to say about the time leading up to the crime and the crime itself. So here it is. To start it all off, just take us back to the day that it happened and just what you remember. So the day that she did the whole plan and she had us all roped into it, I I have a hard time remembering a lot about the, you know, before everything happened anyway. But thinking about that day in particular, it was kind of like a fever dream. It almost doesn't feel real in my head. It's like one of those things of, yeah, it happened, but it feels like it's so distant and disconnected from me that all I remember is like, I slept all day because I was so freaked out from what was going on. When I finally got up and, you know, she was like, it's time to do this. I just remember it being like, I took a breath and I was like, okay, so this is where your life up to this point ends and something else happens. Wow. I'm sure. I mean, what were the conversations like? I mean, what, what, why Grandview? You know, why, why this whole ordeal? I mean, I know we know that she was going to prison for this healthcare fraud charge, but like who decided to go to Grandview? Well, it was her. And, and what's even more ridiculous to, about this whole situation is I distinctly remember multiple times where she had talked with her lawyer and they had essentially told her, as far as these charges go, the way that the pleas were working out, she wasn't even going to go to prison. She she was going to, worst case scenario, like home confinement and or probation, and she didn't even think she was going to prison. It was her ego, like she was so self-involved that she thought in her mind that it would be better for people to think she was dead than it would be for her quote-unquote public image to be tarnished. So she thought that if she went to Grandview and did this whole thing at Grandview, she assumed that it was just too steep to ever go down there and there was no chance of a body ever being found. We all tried to explain to her that that's not how this works and that they were going to go look in no matter what. And she just refused to hear it. She was dead set on it. So he took her shoe and her earring, is that right? And threw it over. Um, what exactly happened that morning that you can remember? She essentially, she gave us a few things. Um, I think it was an earring, um, a shoe and her cell phone. And she said, just throw these over the overlook when nobody's around, give it a few minutes, and then that's when you'll call for help. And so that's essentially what happened. We went out there and the stuff went over. We gave it a few minutes and then called for help. I mean, it was it was scary, but it was in a way it was very straightforward. It was like we're being given a task and we go do that. You know, it was kind of part of whatever was going on. Were there people there whenever um, the 911 call was placed? 
Yeah, I think there were two other people that were out walking. So did they like kind of stop and, you know, help you guys start looking or like what happened? They stopped. I I can't really remember much from like once everything kind of started happening. Once the stuff went over, I kind of blank out. But I do remember they stopped and were doing everything they can to help. But, you know, at the time it wasn't much. Mm -hmm. So you said that there was a plan. What was the initial conversation that that she or they both had with you before this all got started? How did you first find out that there was they were going to do this whole plan? Well, she brought it up to me in February of 2020, I think it was. And she says, you know, she's like, what do you think about me trying to basically fake my death and get out of this? And I essentially looked at her and I'm going to I'm going to keep it low here because I don't know what I'm allowed to say. But I essentially said, what in the expletive are you talking about? Like I looked at her. and I was like, what are you talking about? You don't actually think that could work, do you? And she was convinced that if she went out there and she, her plan was is she had her card at the time and she said that she was just going to take it out there and leave a note and in her words, figure out exactly where she's going a little bit closer as far as like hiding goes. And I, I tried to explain to her, I'm like, you know, they're, that's going to be really suspicious. Like, you know, they're never going to believe that. And we got in an argument about it because she would basically anytime anybody wouldn't take her side, she'd just get real mad. So we ended up fighting about it. And I didn't hear about it for a couple months. And then she started bringing it up again. And my whole thought process was kind of just, oh, you're still on this. <laughs> like, I, I, I thought you were done with this. I thought you understood it was stupid. She basically started making a bunch of threats like she made threats of like suicide and all kinds of things she at one point what she did is she basically battered everybody in the house and made their lives miserable and basically told her or told us that if we didn't do this for her that she was going to make sure that we never had a peaceful day and other as long as we live she threatened to kill herself on multiple occasions she wrote letters and then would like talk about them in order to get us to do this and she just like beat everybody down and was super manipulative and it was just it was horrible so what were the days like then after they were searching for her and she was at home like what was going on then it was the most bizarre couple days of my entire life because at this point i've confined myself to my room i'm just trying to completely just get out of the realm of reality that I'm in and I'm just trying to make it through the day and she's at home sitting in the chair right her big recliner that she had and she's got her iPad and she's watching the news and she's just talking about it and she's laughing like it's funny or like this isn't some huge thing that just completely wrecked everybody else's life she's laughing about it talking about how she can't believe that she's going to get away with this and it was so bizarre and it like to think about it now it makes me really angry but it was basically just that just her laughing and talking about how she's going to get away with it and being at the house just like sitting in her recliner like nothing was really going on 
So do you think that they ever thought that they would have to leave the home? I mean, was the plan to always stay in Beaver? The plan was, is the way I understood it was she wanted this whole thing to pass. She thought she was going to be able to hide out in the house while this whole investigation was going on. And it was going to blow over and they were going to declare her dead. And then she was going to get her life insurance policy. We were going to take that money, leave the state, move. She was talking about moving somewhere in Florida, but I don't really know where we would have gone. She didn't even think that far ahead. She was just like, once we get the life insurance money, we'll get out of state, change our identities and start over. Wow. And I mean, how did you feel about that? Like the whole thought of having to pick up your entire life, were you going to go with them or did you want to stay behind, like back? Well, that's how she, one of the ways like she roped me into it is because, you know, our, our extended family around here, we, we don't have a good relationship with them. Our, uh, Julie's mother had always made our lives completely miserable and I'd always wanted to get out of state. You know, I'd wanted to move away. And just kind of start fresh. And so that's kind of how she wrote me into it. This whole, she had this whole, we'll have all this money. We'll pay for you to go to college, go to a really good college. And, you know, you'll be able to do whatever you want and nothing that happened here will matter. And that's one of the ways that she used to kind of manipulate me into it. I think the question that everybody wants to know, were you there when state police came to the house? Yeah. Well, um, okay. So I wasn't initially, um, when she got arrested. I was down the road. I got a call from my dad saying to come home, uh, that they wanted to look through our phones, which Julie had warned me about. And so I was like, okay. And I go back to the house and they, they look through our phones. And I distinctly remember one of the troopers. I can't remember which one, but he said, I'm not, he's like, I could get, he said he could either get, or he had warrants to search through the phones and like go download them. But he wasn't going to do that because he didn't see a reason to and he was like, we just have to do a walkthrough of the house where she's on probation, make sure nothing is amiss, and then we'll be out of here. And she was hiding in the closet in the living room because the way we it worked is you walked in and you could either go straight or you could go up the stairs. Well, there was a closet that went underneath these stairs. It was in the living room. So she was hiding underneath the stairs like that. And as soon as they opened the door and flashed the light in, they saw her like she wasn't exactly very well hidden. She got cocky and thought she was too smart to get caught. And so I remember they pulled their guns and they got her out of the closet. And basically all I remember is all age breaking loose. You know, I just kind of remember it was kind of chaos from there and it's very disorienting to think about, but then they loaded both of my parents into a car and then they loaded me and my brother into a car and we all went down to the, the state police barracks by the armory. Was Rodney fully 100% in on this plan, or do you think that she just had an influence over him and convinced him to do this? Oh, she she had a complete influence. He he was not in on it. He did not like the idea. He did not think it was a good idea. But she was at the point where she knew how to play with his mind to such an extent because she... I don't think she ever intended to do something this despicable, but she spent her whole life just figuring out how to play with people's minds and just get them to do what she wanted. When did you know that your mom was stealing money from the VA for when all of this happened? 
really when when the FBI showed up. What was that like? That was it was kind of weird because I didn't really feel scared when it happened because they well when they showed up they you know of course they separated all the kids from all the adults and the way that it was explained to me by mom after it happened and before it happened they she had kept me out of the loop on it so I really didn't know what was going on I kind of figured she was going over she was taking care of my aunt and we were billing properly and everything was fine well, once the FBI showed up, mom proceeded to explain to me that it was just a mistake, that they were going to resolve it, and that it was just a one-time thing. So when it happened, like I didn't realize until much, much later the extent it was, but after the FBI showed up, I kind of knew something was fishy, but she still tried to lie about it and make it sound like she wasn't doing anything wrong. But I think when the FBI showed up, that's when I kind of knew that things were happening and they were not good things yeah and then i mean she ended up pleading guilty to it so do you i mean what was it like after that was that when the plan started coming out the plan started right before actually she pleaded guilty once she pled guilty it hit the news she got fired from her job she you know when things like that happen it it all just kind of came crashing down around her And that's when she decided that she wanted to make this plan. And like I said, for a lot of like the the early stages of the plan, like when she was first kind of getting around in her head from like February to like April, she had talked to me about it once. And I thought she was just insane and was going to get over it in an hour. But that never happened. Yeah, obviously she never she never got over it. She really she really thought she was like a master criminal or something. Were your parents apologetic towards you and your brother? Did they ever even apologize or feel guilty towards you all for what they put you guys through? My dad did, and he's apologized multiple times, and he's really, like, turned it around, and things are a lot better. As far as my mom goes, I'm just going to put it like this. I do not like my mother at all. I, I want nothing to do with her she has never apologized. She never apologized for what she did. She apologized for the quote unquote problems that it caused afterwards, but she's never apologized for what she did. She's never apologized for what she put everybody through. And I don't think she ever will because she's a narcissist. Like she is only involved in herself and she I don't think she'll ever apologize to us because she's never really apologized for anything my entire life. So my dad has been, but my mother, of course, has not. So what happened to you and your brother when they were both arrested? Where did you guys go? We went with Julie, of course, pick pick these people. But we went with a couple of friends that my parents had. And CPS put us in this house in Reno with these people and this house was the dirtiest nastiest dingiest place i've ever seen in my entire life and it was like it was flea infested it was in the middle of nowhere and it was dirty and there was like broken glass all over the place and talking to the social worker afterwards like once we left there she said that basically the only reason we stayed there is because that was the only option 
but that's where we went for a couple of months. It was it was really bad the first couple of months, like when we were down in Raynell. Um, we had basically everything that we owned taken or thrown out or ruined. Anytime anybody asks me about it, I tell them, and I'm completely honest when I say this, I think it is the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Like, it was really, really rough after it first happened, you know, kind of having to grapple with the fact that my whole life up before that point was gone. Everything I had was gone. But once I got through that and through those initial couple of months where it was really bad with the CPS thing, my life has just taken a turn for the complete better. I mean, Julie would never let me have a job. I was never allowed to have any kind of personal like money or anything. It always had to go through her. I was never allowed to dress the way I wanted or express myself or dye my hair or anything like that. So now I've kind of, I had this whole period where I kind of was figuring out who I am and I went, I, like I have a job now and I, I bought my own car and everything. So just ever since she's been gone, it's just, it's been amazing for me. Like I've been able to do all these things that I wanted to do and kind of carve out a path for myself away from her. Is there anything that you would like to say on your behalf, you know, to to clear your name or what would you like to say in regard to this whole thing? I don't really know if there's anything I want to say to try to clear my name because what happened happened and I was a part of it. And while I under like, you know, cause I've had to go to therapy and stuff about this. So while I understand that I was, you know, manipulated and twisted into this I, and it was kind of thrust upon me, I admit that I still had a part in it and that my part in that was wrong. I'm just glad to be out of the situation. I'm glad that I've just turned everything around and I'm stable and just living the happiest life I can. Uh, I think the only thing that I would want to say is that if you, if you have people in your life and they're manipulative and narcissistic and especially if their family is a blood tie is not worth what letting that person do to your mind. It's not worth what that could cause. Let me just say this before we interviewed Ryan, we did not know what we were getting ourselves into and we did not know what he was going to say. We didn't even know if he was going to speak specifics on what happened but I can speak for the both of us when I say our minds are absolutely blown by everything that Ryan told us. It's still a lot to take in. It's a lot. The fact that we know exactly what was happening when people were searching for her and Julie's reaction speaks volumes to this case. I'll leave it at that. And now I think Autumn, me and you are like, well, where are they going to go? was the plan always to stay in Beaver and now we know and still that to me is just I doesn't make sense the answers that I made up in my mind to the questions that I had still are not as shocking as the actual truth the fact that she was at home on the couch watching the news coverage of people searching for her risking their lives to look for her is probably the most startling thing that he said it was so unbelievable to hear 
how narcissistic she was. And she truly just did not care that the whole entire region was looking for her. And she was laughing on her couch watching it all unfold. That is stunning and shocking. We could have interviewed every single person who responded and searched and every trooper and everybody, and we would have never gotten that information because they didn't know what they were doing between that time. They didn't know. I mean, they, they, I know when the truth came out, they did know some of the details, but I, I think now every single question we have is finally answered. And that interview is what we all needed for us, I think I can say we can sleep at night now because we know. We can finally lay to rest all of the questions. I also think that hearing how she was manipulating her family, the fact that she was saying that she would kill herself. And I mean, these were young boys we're talking about. You know, their minds are still growing. They're still learning you know, they're growing up. The way that she manipulated them, it breaks my heart because now they're having to live with this and like reel from everything that they went through. And, you know, I, I think that Ryan was so well-spoken and the way that he told the story was, it was really nice to see what he's become after this. It sounds like he's really getting he and his brother, even his dad, they're all, you know, starting to move on with their lives. But another big thing that I want to talk about that I still think about is the fact that her lawyer told her she probably wasn't even going to jail for the healthcare fraud. And so why did you do this? And he said it. I don't even have to ask that. We know because she didn't want a reputation to be ruined. But then I ask the question is how many people were going to know? You know right. I mean? Like it's something obviously, I mean, we had reported it. You're going to see it on the news, but the news cycle is 24 hours. You know, it's going to go away. Mm -hmm. People are going to forget. You know, we have the questions answered, but it's still hard to believe that she really thought that she was going to get away with this. Like she truly, genuinely thought that this plan was going to work. And she was so confident in that, that she didn't even think that she had to, she didn't even think she had to hide deep into the closet. She just popped into the closet, shut the door, and was waiting for the police to leave so she could get back on her couch and watch the news and laugh at us. This is definitely going to be one of those bizarre crimes that everybody who listens to it is probably always going to remember. Thank you so much for listening to Crime in the Coalfields. This was a case that Casey and I have been really excited to dig into. And to be honest with you, we had a totally different plan for this episode. We had recorded a whole episode and we were ready to move on to our next episode, number three, until we got the call that Ryan wanted to speak with us. And that really changed everything for us. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is we always know that there are two sides to every story and we always, always, always do our hardest and try very hard to get both sides of the stories. That's what we as journalists do, but sometimes family members just aren't comfortable speaking. And Rodney didn't want to speak in this podcast, which is understandable, but Ryan had a lot to say. He had a lot to get off of his chest and hearing exactly what he had to say, hearing about his relationship with his mother and everything leading up to this case, it changed our minds completely. I think everything that Ryan had to say was just so eye-opening and was a totally different perspective on what we had already known about this. So, it changes for us how we view this case. It's not just this crazy, insane 
kooky story that we had always thought it to be, we heard ourselves along with everyone else how bad the people involved were hurt and it's devastating yeah i mean let's be honest a lot of people they hear this story and they laugh that's just an easy reaction to have but there are a lot of people who were affected by this and a lot of people who will always be affected by this not only the family but let's not forget about the people who were out there on the cliff literally risking their lives for essentially two days looking for a woman who was never even there men and women literally putting their lives on the line for hours upon hours for two days trying to bring this woman back to her family who claimed that they were so desperate to find her and all for nothing yeah it was it's definitely one of those cases like we've mentioned time and time again we're never gonna forget it and while there may be a little bit of humor behind it just about mainly where she was found but I mean, still, it's going to be one of those cases that we think you're probably always going to remember. People still talk about it to this day, but I just want to thank Ryan once again for trusting us to tell and share his story and for giving all of us just a different perspective on this case that I think everyone needed. And we also want to thank our sponsors, Notoriously Morbid and Rose and Questenberry Funeral Chapels for sponsoring our podcast. You can also find Paris Dunford and Larry Mars full interviews over on our website, WVNSTV.com. Just look for the Crime in the Coalfields tab. That's where you'll also find pictures and videos of our coverage in this case, as well as all of the sources that we used for this information. So thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you back here in two weeks for another episode. See you there. This podcast is a production of WVNS 59 News in Beckley, West Virginia. It's written and produced by Casey Gentile and Autumn Collins. Production and editing is done by Brian C. For more information on this case and others, you can visit our website at wvnstv.com.